because he was a man who currently has a business in landscaping. It'll all work out one of these days. But things change for my friend between the preschool play dates and the business that he now owns. For some days, life got rather dark. After Ann and I moved away from that community, he got involved in drugs. He did um, several stints in the county jail and was even sent to the state prison for a bit. But he submitted himself to a Christian recovery ministry so that his life was transformed to the point where he was now able to write a month ago. I remember the years where my only contact with my brothers was through the mail. I had been absent physically and emotionally for a lot of years, and I missed a lot of firsts. Today, all four of us share a pew at church, and I see the absolute evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives. Stand in the gap and don't lose faith. God is so much bigger than anything that we've lost. He is bigger than time, and he is certainly bigger than my mistakes. He took my stupidity into account when he appointed his grace and set things in motion. Thank God he isn't limited by us. He continues to floor me time and time again. We know that God has a plan for our lives, but the devil does too. Generational curses are broken. Devious plans destroyed. And the grace of God reigns. It's a good Sunday. Now, I share this story because Ann and I prayed with his mother when she didn't know if she would ever see her son again outside of prison. I know a leopard cannot change his spots. I know that a zebra cannot change his stripes. But God can transform a hardened heart dead in sin. As we gathered around the table a few moments ago and confessed our sins, I trust you believe that God not only forgave them, but that he is able to transform you so that you won't do them again. And if God can transform my self-righteous heart, he can still do the miraculous. That's the big idea of today's text. We need to start by admitting how bad things were so that we will realize how great the transformation was in the life 
of Saul. Saul, before conversion, was a problem. He was a problem that had to be dealt with. And his problem was internally consistent with his worldview. Saul, before his conversion, was acting consistent with his presuppositions. His presupposition is that Messiah could not be crucified. And if Jesus was crucified, he couldn't be Messiah. And all those who claimed that Jesus was Messiah needed to be silenced. John Carson, one of my favorite theologians, now retired from Trinity Seminary, writes in his devotional book, For the Love of God, it's Paul's perspective before he was converted. Elsewhere, Acts 22, 23, Philippians 3, tells us that he was a strict Pharisee, brought up in Jerusalem, taught by one of the most renowned rabbis of the day. And for him, the notion of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. Messiah's rule, they triumph, they win. The law insists that those who hang on a tree are cursed by God. So surely, therefore, the insistence that Jesus is the Messiah is not only stupid, it verges on blasphemous, according to his mind. In Acts chapter 7, it ends with Saul attending to the execution of Stephen. Acts chapter 8 begins with his persecution of the believers and scattering them in attempts of silencing the gospel of the way. And Acts chapter 9 opens in front of us, and he is still breathing threats and murder against those who follow Christ. Verse 2 says, He is even seeking permission to go on a pillage and destroy tour to the north. This is just past where Philip went on his missionary journey in the previous chapter. You know, sometimes it may be hard for us to um, comprehend the actions of unbelievers. There are many who shatter the boundaries of what we consider simple courtesy. Burning and looting to make a social or political point is beyond my understanding. And it's easy for me to become judgmental of them because their sin is different than my temptations. They may not understand my temptations with food. And I don't get their temptations with what the parable of the, goods, uh, of the prodigal son calls reckless living. But just as Saul's persecution of Christians was totally consistent with his understanding of the Jewish Messiah, people around us pursue behaviors that are totally consistent with their worldview. One of our worshipers this morning 
was telling me that last night he worked security at an event. And he said, I saw all sorts of behaviors that go against my sense of morality, but they're totally consistent with that worldview that says, there's no God that's going to judge me. And if they, those outside of the church, believe there is no God who holds people accountable and that there is no hell as a consequence for sin, why not chase after the pursuits of Ecclesiastes? If you don't know, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament that describes a person trying to find meaning in life apart from God. And trying to find that meaning, that fulfillment, that value is totally consistent with the worldview that says there is no God. He was internally consistent, but at the same time, externally, he caused great concern. Verse 13 reveals that the early Christians were very aware of Saul's threats and actions, and they were rightly alarmed. Verse 4 reveals someone else who is concerned with Saul's persecution. Jesus claims in verse 4 that when Saul persecutes the church, Saul is persecuting Jesus. And Saul's traveling companions were concerned as well. They heard the voice, but they couldn't see the source. An unidentified voice with your leader falling on the ground, you'd probably have some level of concern as well. So while a crucified Messiah was a problem for Paul's understanding of the world, a resurrected Savior presents a whole new challenge to his presuppositions. And Paul is compelled to transform from a problem driven by his old worldview to become, after his conversion, a partner in the gospel message. As he becomes a partner, I actually see that when Saul encounters the true Christ, not the one that he had in his mind, who, who he thought a Messiah would be, but when Saul encounters the true, living, resurrected Christ, transformation was inevitable. He had to change from that worldview to something different when he encountered the living, resurrected Christ. See, Saul hated the Jesus that he thought he knew, not the true Jesus. People around us also have misconceptions of God. And rather than read God's revelation of himself in the Bible, they put together bits and pieces and they form a God of their own making whom they can ignore. So the people that you know and love who are outside of Christ, their behaviors maybe, most likely are totally consistent with their worldview. And what they need to change their world perspective is to encounter the true, living, resurrected Savior of the world. Because once we grant that Jesus is alive, 
and that Jesus' death is vindicated, everything changes. Everything changes when we encounter the true Christ. It changed for Saul, who became a partner for the gospel, but he's not the only transformation that we see in this chapter. Because in verse 10, we are introduced to Ananias. And he's a hesitant or a doubtful discipler. Ananias is about to be sent to minister to Saul. But he doesn't know if he wants to go. And God may be calling some of us to get involved in the discipleship of another, and we may be thinking, I don't know if I want to go. And so to the doubtful discipler, some transformation needed to take place. Before Ananias agreed to go to Judas's house on Straight Street, God already had a purpose for Saul. God gave Saul a vision that some man named Ananias would be coming And God convinced Ananias to go against his own better judgment because God was working to bring about transformation in Saul and in Ananias. When Saul encounters this true Christ, his acceptance by the church, because Ananias was a doubtful disciple, it it, it was a gradual acceptance. Verse 22 states that the words coming out of Saul's mouth did not mesh with his reputation. Verse 22 says that's what he's preaching, but but wait a minute. I thought he did this. I thought he did that. In verse 26, he goes to Jerusalem. And the disciples there at Jerusalem are afraid of him. They disbelieve that he is genuine. They're hesitant to let him into their assembly. My friends, a transformation needed to happen within the disciples to welcome a sinner who God had made a saint. We frequently refer to the story of Luke 15 as the prodigal son. (coughs) I believe it is more appropriate to call it two sons with prodigal hearts. The younger son had a prodigal heart that revealed itself in foolish living. The older son had a prodigal heart revealed itself in pouty self-righteousness and indignation. And so the question is not, am I that younger son? But if I'm the older son, what is it about my prodigal heart that God still needs to transform? See, it's easy for us to read this story and to see Saul as the one that needs transformation. But the early believers also needed a grace reminder. We may be looking out at the people around us who are far from God, but do we need a transformation so that we have a renewed eagerness to see God's grace in their lives? We're introduced in verse 27 to a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas simply means encourager. What a great name. If you had to choose your own nickname, the encourager is a pretty good nickname to choose. If we look back at chapter 4, verse 36, we see that Barnabas was a Levite. He was born in the family that became priests. 
He was raised in that tradition as a strict follower of the rules. In verse 37 of chapter 4, Barnabas is actually the donor to the church who set up the whole Ananias and Sapphira account. Barnabas willingly sold some property and gave the money to the early church so they could distribute it. And when Ananias and Sapphira saw what Barnabas did, they said, I want a little piece of that pat on the back, which then set up the events of uh, chapter 4. Barnabas is an encourager, and Barnabas, the encourager, is the one who comes alongside Saul and says to his Christian brothers and sisters who say, man, have you heard about that Saul? You know, he's pretending to be, and he acts like, but Barnabas says, hey, cut the guy some slack. Don't you realize the grace of God might be at work in him to transform him? And brothers and sisters, if you would open up your heart, maybe the grace of God is going to transform you to accept him. Now, Saul does not get hurt or bitter or angry or or upset about needing to earn their trust. He, He used his own experience to shape the future selection of leaders in the church. See, on one hand, he challenged young Timothy not to be discouraged, but to patiently prove his trustworthiness. Our Wednesday night youth ministry is called Youth 412, taken from 1 Timothy 412, because we are telling the young people of Chase County, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And Paul told young Timothy, don't let them dismiss you, don't let them despise you, but rather just set the right example. And if you set the right example long enough, you will be accepted as being one in the family. And so Paul knew he had to earn trust, and he says to these young people, you do the right thing and you will earn trust. But on the other side of the equation... Saul not only told Timothy, do not be discouraged, but Saul told Timothy, now don't be in a rush to give away your trust too soon. Because the very next chapter in 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, once you set the example of doing the right thing, he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't get in a rush to give your public endorsement of that new elder, that new leader, that new brother. I, I found that um, child protection experts warn that perhaps the number one warning sign of a likely predator is an unwillingness to wait to gain access to children. Because narcissistic people have trouble waiting. And so just as the, the security and the protection people are saying, be slow. Paul knew he had to earn trust. Paul told Timothy, you'll need to earn trust. Paul told Timothy, don't give away your trust 
too soon. So what I see here is that while Saul was becoming a partner of the church, the acceptance of that partner was gradual, but it was moving in the right direction. Verse 28 goes on to tell us that Saul never does anything halfway. For before he persecuted with zeal, now he is preaching with boldness. Verses 23 and 29 reveal that Saul's old crew are the very ones that are the target of his preaching. They did not appreciate the new Saul. His new crew is afraid of him. His old crew is plotting to kill him. Who of us wants to sign up for that duty? See, Acts chapter 8 saw Philip preaching in Samaria, which we said Samaria is where from Jerusalem? North. And then he went south to Gaza. And then he, after going south to Gaza, came up along the sea and settled in Caesarea. Remember Philip's trip last week? So this week, we see Peter is about to be sent on a missions trip. But Peter does not go north to Samaria. Peter does not go south to Gaza. Where does Peter go in verses 32 through 43? He spreads the gospel to the west. What, what I find interesting that that chapter 8 goes straight from Saul to Peter is that um, even though Saul has been converted, God isn't done with Peter. Just because there's a new generation of disciples doesn't mean God is done with the previous generation. We tend to think of ministry as a relay where a baton gets passed. But in reproduction, the generations overlap. And while you produce children, you still remain productive. And Lord willing, when you get grandchildren, you still remain productive. And the generations overlap, and God is not done with Peter just because he's about to do a new thing through Saul. And my friends, God is not done with you just because the new generation does things a little bit differently. Those who hold the traditions of the previous generation, the teaching of the apostles, needs to continue to spread the good news, and Peter does so to the West. Now, here is a, a map that you can basically see the big shape, but you can't see the individual pieces. Um, if I mark it this way, um, this is Jerusalem. This was the Samaria where Philip went. But in this story, Peter comes here to a land that is called Lod or Lud or in the scripture, Lydda. The scriptural reference to Lydda is a city that you can still find on Google Maps. It's located about right here that is the land of Lod. And then he goes on further to the west, to the land of Joppa. So we can set the second part of Acts chapter 8 geographically. That um, Philip went to the north, Philip went to the south, 
Peter is going due west here towards the sea. And as, Pe- as Peter is making this trip, two significant things happen. The first significant thing that happens is Ananias is healed in verses 32 through 35. Now, I may be reading something into the text, but I think when it says he was coming to the saints in verse 32, I think it implies he was teaching and preaching to the saints. When he came to the saints, it wasn't just, hey, guys, let's hang out together. He came with a purpose, and Peter came preaching and teaching. And following his preaching and teaching, he encounters a man in verse 33 by the name of Aeneas. And Aeneas happened to be a paraplegic for the last eight years. And I notice that it is without fuss, it is without production, it is without drama or suspense. Peter simply says, Aeneas, uh, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make your bed. He simply says, God's going to do it. Get up and walk home. Now, I pointed out last week that signs follow witness. Not just wonders to draw a crowd, but the signs and the miracles that are performed give credibility to the witness that has been proclaimed. And Aeneas was healed following the witness of uh, Peter to the people. And then in the following paragraph, a, a young lady by the name of Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. I think I'd prefer Tabitha if I was Miss Dorcas. But um, she had a great reputation of being caring and loving and kind. But she's dead. And, and, and we don't know how long she has been dead. But her body has already been prepared for burial. The mourners had already gathered, so it's, it's long enough that she didn't just get the vapors and pass out. She's dead, dead. But we see in verse 40 that what happens to Tabitha is that she is raised. She is restored. Those are probably the headings. If your Bible has headings over the paragraphs... It probably tells us something about Tabitha either being raised or restored. It doesn't say that she's resurrected. Now, we would tend to think, brought back from the dead, isn't that resurrection? Well, she was restored, she was raised, but there's no evidence that she didn't die again. And that's the difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Jesus was raised He was resurrected never to die again. Lazarus was raised, and he died. Tabitha was raised, and she died. But Jesus is unique. See, God had a plan for Saul. God had a plan for Ananias. God had a plan for Peter to minister to Aeneas and Tabitha. And this morning... God may be wanting to transform you into a believer like Saul. Today, God may be trying to transform you into a discipler like Ananias. Today, God may be trying to call some of us to leave our comfort zone and to go on mission, as Peter did, to the West. 
See, as I looked at this passage this week, I realized Saul was not beyond transformation. Even though he had a reputation for being a mean guy, although he had a history of being a mean guy, he was not beyond the transformation of the power of the gospel to make him into a new guy. Aeneas was not beyond transformation. Aeneas had eight years of paralysis, but God was still able to redeem it. And sister, even though you've had back pain for a year and a half, it's not too long. You are not beyond transformation, not beyond a touch from the hand of our God who transforms. Tabitha was not beyond transformation. Her body was ready for burial. The mourners had gathered, but God wasn't done with her. So she was raised. As we think about transformation, maybe we've been in that rut so long, we've begun to believe that God can't transform this situation. So I want us to think freshly, what are the spots that you can't get out? What is the hopeless situation that you face? Who bears the stripes that you think will never change? That person who has treated me X, and he will never be anything but an Xer. Who is that unlikely person God wants to place on your heart? And you are the Ananias. And God says, I'm sending you to her. But God, that person that God has put on your heart, and God wants to send you to him. And you're thinking, but God, I know that he... See, the power of the gospel transforms impossible people. It transformed a persecutor, a paralytic, and a prepared corpse. But God wasn't done. God still transformed. The power of the gospel transforms God's people. A doubtful disciple who said, I don't want to go. And a reformed Levite who says, that's not the way I was raised. But God is still in the business of transforming unlikely people. We're going to sing one final song and then get you dismissed so that you can tune in to, I understand there's a football game that started two minutes ago. Hopefully you've got a delayed broadcast. And I'd like to ask um, Sister Jean if you could go to the piano. I've already got it opened up, um, number 313. I, I know Jean has played through the hymn book and she said, she says, she takes it as a personal challenge that I can just put music in front of her and she'll be able to play it. So, um, <laughs> The song that we're going to sing is somewhere in here. It's not there. It's not there. And God